VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to the Tech Meme Ride Home for Thursday, November 12th, 2020. I'm Brian McCullough. Today, why Google sunsetting its free version of its photo service has so many people riled up. Apple's test flight update should make beta testing apps easier. Amazon's Alexa Care Hub should make caring for elderly relatives easier. A bank on rails is an interesting raise. And is the HomePod Mini worth buying? Here's what you missed today in the world of tech. So the free ride is over. Google has announced it will end its unlimited photos storage on June 1st of next year, thereafter imposing a new 15 gigabyte cap before they ask you to pay up for more storage. But before you freak out, photos and documents uploaded before that date, June 1st of 2021, will not count against the cap, quoting The Verge. All photos and documents uploaded before June 1st will not count against that 15 gigabyte cap, so you have plenty of time to decide whether to continue using Google Photos or switching to another cloud storage provider for your photos. Only photos uploaded after June 1st will begin counting against the cap. Google already counts original quality photo uploads against a storage cap in Google Photos. However, taking away unlimited backup for high-quality photos and video, which are automatically compressed for more efficient storage, also takes away one of the service's biggest selling points. It was the photo service where you just didn't have to worry about how much storage you had. As a side note, Pixel owners will still be able to upload high-quality, not original, photos for free after June 1st without those images counting against their cap. It's not as good as the Pixel's original deal of getting unlimited original quality, but it's a small bonus for the few people who buy Google devices. Google points out that it offers more free storage than others. You get 15 gigabytes instead of the paltry 5 gigabytes that Apple's iCloud gives you, and it also claims that 80% of Google Photos users won't hit that 15 gigabyte cap for at least three years, end quote. By the way, even though this photos thing is getting all the headlines, it's also worth noting that this is a sort of new storage policy for Google across the board, quoting Mashable. Going forward, Google says that if you don't check in on your Google Drive files every now and then, it may delete them. Google frames this change as a way to tidy up abandoned digital detritus, perhaps left over from long-forgotten accounts, which may be, sure... Or alternatively, it may be that a Google user simply stored some valuable files away for a while, like one might with physical documents in a fireproof safe, and simply hasn't peeked at them in a few years. Quote, we're introducing new policies for consumer accounts that are either inactive or over their storage limit across Gmail, Drive, including Google Docs, Sheets, Slides, Drawings, Forms, and Jamboard files, and or photos to better align with common practices across the industry, explains Google in a blog post announcing the change. If you're inactive in one or more of these services for two years, 24 months, Google may delete the content in the products in which you're inactive, end quote. In other words, Google at present has no plans to just start deleting your stuff willy-nilly. However, it's letting you know that come June 1st, 2021, the clock is ticking, end quote. But back to the free-for-all for photos ending. That's what's gotten everyone all riled up overnight, which makes sense because this sort of touches all of our buttons when it comes to Google, right? something something, never rely on Google services to be consistent forever, or to even exist for more than half a decade. Google Photos has been free for almost exactly five years, by the way. But also, 
this strikes to the heart of the whole antitrust argument with which Google and other big tech companies are being tarred. Quoting Casey Newton, Google earned $11.2 billion in profits last quarter and uses all your uploaded photos to train its machine learning algorithms, which offers it other enormous competitive benefits. Also seems notable that free Google photo storage helped to drive tons of startups out of this market. Everpix, Loom, Ever, PictureLife. Now that they're gone and Google is tired of losing money on photos, the revenue switch flips, end quote. And quoting from a widely read piece by Will Aramis in 1-0, quote, It's a galling bait-and-switch and an object lesson in anti-competitive behavior by a big tech firm. The unlimited free storage offer was arguably Google Photos' top selling point, one that few, if any, competing providers could match. The company was likely willing to lose money on its service in exchange for the photo's value in training its AI systems and for the value of keeping users in its broader software ecosystem. What was once a hotly competitive and innovative space is now now largely controlled by Google and a few other giants such as Apple. And this points to another set of losers, albeit a nebulous one. Everyone who might have benefited from the new ideas and fresh features that were never developed because startups didn't stand a chance against Google. It would be easy to reach for a sardonic don't be evil reference here, but what Google is doing and why it matters isn't best understood in moral terms. At every step, it was just doing what successful companies do. It offered a great product for free because it could afford to, it crushed competitors largely by virtue of being the best option on the market, and now it's raising prices because the free storage offer has served its purpose. Instead, this move is best understood from the standpoint of competition and antitrust. It's Google's vast size and scope, the way its products in different markets complement and cross-subsidize each other, that gave it unmatchable advantages over smaller rivals. In retrospect, the free storage offer looks a lot like predatory pricing, whether that was Google's intent or not. But the bigger picture is that Google, like other dominant platforms, has its hand in so many different mutually reinforcing lines of business that it will always be incentivized to leverage them in anti-competitive ways. From a certain standpoint, the standpoint of maximizing profit and shareholder value, it would be foolish not to, end quote. But I will give you this Interesting counterpoint from Dare Obasanjo, who actually engaged directly with Will on Twitter about his piece. Quote, This is why breakup big tech is sloganeering without a coherent policy. What breakup action would be recommended in this instance? Should Google Photos be spun out of Google? meaning they'd have to charge for it from the jump? Or that Google can't build new free products anymore? The article title is literally that this case is proof an antitrust remedy is needed. I'm simply asking how so. Google Photos is a loss leader. These are common business practices. McDonald's profit comes from soda, not burgers. What antitrust regulation would be useful here? Lots of commentary on antitrust and big tech is really, I'm mad at this company and want them to be punished. There is no government intervention that will cause a for-profit company to give you free unlimited storage forever, end quote. Apple has updated TestFlight, its tool for testing beta apps on iOS, iPadOS, and tvOS, adding support for automatic updates, among other things, quoting 9to5Mac. The addition of automatic updates in TestFlight is a notable improvement. This means that when you're beta testing an application, the app will automatically update whenever a new version is released by the developer. Previously, you'd have to go to the TestFlight app and manually install updates. For developers, this also means that it'll be easier to ensure that all beta users are using the most up-to-date version of the app. Prior to earlier this week's One More Thing event, 
focused on Apple Silicon. There had been rumors that TestFlight would come to the Mac as well. As of right now, that has not happened, and it does not appear that you will be able to run the iPhone or iPad version of TestFlight on Apple Silicon Macs. Of course, this could soon change, end quote. Want a better way to simplify your business finances across expenses, vendor payments, and accounting? If so, Ramp could be a complete game changer. Ramp is the corporate card and spend management software designed to help you save time and put money back in your pocket. Ramp gives finance teams unprecedented control and insight into company spend. With Ramp, you're able to issue cards to every employee with limits and restrictions and automate expense reporting so you can stop wasting time at the end of every month. Ramp's accounting software automatically collects receipts and categorizes your expenses in real time so you don't have to. You'll never have to chase down a receipt again, and your employees will no longer spend hours submitting expense reports. The time you'll save each month on employee expenses will allow you to close your books eight times faster. Ramp's also saves you money. Businesses that use Ramp save an average of 5% the first year. Ramp is easy to use. Get started, issue virtual and physical cards, and start making payments in less than 15 minutes, whether you have five employees or 5,000. And now, get $250 when you join Ramp. Just go to ramp.com slash techmeme. Ramp.com slash techmeme. R-A-M-P dot com slash techmeme. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Guys, we don't have to choose between hair growth and our health. Nutrafol's drug-free whole-body approach promotes hair growth from within. No compromises, just better hair. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement brand with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster-growing hair with less shedding. With Nutrafol, building a hair growth routine is simple. Purchase online, no prescription or doctor's visits required. Free shipping and automated deliveries ensure you'll never miss a day. See results in three to six months. While many supplements rely solely on ingredient studies, Nutrafol clinically tests final formulations to ensure their efficacy. In a clinical study, 84% of men showed improvement in their hair after six months taking Nutrafol's men's hair growth supplements. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair for a limited time. Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com slash men and enter the promo code RIDEHOME. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and hairstylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com slash men spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com slash men and enter promo code RIDEHOME. Amazon has unveiled what it is calling Alexa Care Hub, which will help people care for aging relatives using the Alexa ecosystem, offering an activity feed that caregivers can review, as well as emergency contact features, quoting CNBC. The company said it has been hearing from customers for years about using Alexa's voice assistant to monitor aging relatives who are increasingly looking to stay in their residences rather than move to a nursing home. The shift has created a more than $30 billion market for assistive technology, according to the Consumer Technology Association. 
As of Wednesday, customers with an Alexa voice assistant can link their account to an aging loved one's Alexa account. If the family member accepts the invitation, their caregiver can send alerts and view their relative's activity feed. That feed is more of a high-level summary that includes basic information such as lights being used in the home rather than a way to spy on parents. There's also an emergency contact feature where the loved one can simply say, you know who, call for help. You know who will then send an immediate push notification to the caregiver, end quote. Amazon says they have been working on this service for about 18 months, but decided to push it out ASAP because since COVID-19 struck, people are often unable to see their relatives, especially their older relatives, in person. Interesting raise Thursday. Rails Bank, which aims to be a utility on which other companies can build financial services, has raised $37 million led by Middle Game Ventures and Ventura Capital, quoting TechCrunch. Rails Bank positions itself as a utility on which other companies, spanning fintech startups, challenger brands to incumbent banks that want to refactor their tech, can build and sell various financial services or add fintech features to their products. When the company closed its Series A, Nigel Verdon, co-founder and CEO of RailsBank, likened it to what Amazon has done for data centers with AWS. Quote, RailsBank is a utility for the complete financial services backend, platform, connectivity, operations, scheme memberships, regulation, and compliance, he told me at the time. More recently, and unsurprisingly given recent fintech trends, RailsBank is also talking itself up as an embedded finance partner. The pitch is that RailsBank's APIs are the building blocks for customers to build pretty much any financial use case they can imagine. The use cases are also diversified, with the top three being lending, banking, and savings related, which are embedded into fintech, retail, telco, insurance, and other customer journeys, Verdon says. To that end, RailsBank's credit card as a service offering means that any company can offer a branded credit card using the fintech's infrastructure and tech. Quote, in less than 12 weeks, we can deliver a credit card in the customer's brand along with a user journey seamlessly embedded into the customer's existing user experience, explains Verdon. Our mission is to reinvent, unbundle, and democratize access to the complex, opaque, and Byzantine 70-year-old credit card market, which is worth $4 trillion in the U.S. alone, end quote. Finally today, one more hardware review in a month that has seen so many of them. At The Verge, Dan Seifert says Apple's new HomePod Mini has a compact design, is priced accessibly, and Siri is fast and responsible, but as an actual speaker, it falls down a bit. It simply doesn't sound as good as similarly priced competitors. Quote, It's smaller, simpler, and way less expensive than its bigger sibling, and thanks to Apple's work on Siri over the past few years, it can actually do more than the original when it launched. It's clear that Apple designed this to complement the larger HomePod. If you have an original in your living room, you can put the Mini in various other places in your home without having to invest as much money or take up as much shelf space. But the rest of the smart speaker world has obviously not stood still, and Amazon and Google have released the most compelling options in their respective lineups this year. While Siri has gotten better, it's still the HomePod Mini's Achilles heel. Well, that and the fact that you still need to be fully embedded in Apple's ecosystem to get the most out of it. With the first HomePod, Apple prioritized sound quality above all else. That's not quite the same with the HomePod Mini, but you can still hear the effort that went into making the Mini sound relatively good. I say good in quotes because for its size, the HomePod Mini sounds quite nice. It's considerably better sounding than the similar-sized 4th-gen Echo Dot, 
and it puts out more bass than other small smart speakers. The key thing to notice is that the HomePod Mini outperforms other small smart speakers like the Echo Dot and Nest Mini, but it can't compete with larger speakers like the regular Echo, Nest Audio, or Sonos One. The HomePod Mini is priced closer to those larger speakers, although it really belongs in the small speaker class when it comes to the sound it can produce. At 3.3 inches, the HomePod Mini is about the same size as the 4th Gen Echo Dot and considerably smaller than the full-size Echo or Google's Nest Audio. As a result, it has just one speaker, a downward-firing full-range driver that is designed to evenly spread sound in all directions. Two passive radiators help to accentuate lower bass tones, but they shouldn't be confused with the multiple active speakers that are in the Echo and Nest audio. At $100 compared to the original HomePod's $350 launch price, the Mini is priced low enough that you can envision buying more than one and spreading them throughout your home. It does most of the things you expect a smart speaker to do, and sounds good when doing them. If you're already fully bought into Apple's ecosystem, including services, it's hard to fault the HomePod Mini's price or capabilities. It also provides an escape from some of the privacy concerns and baggage that come with the Echo or Nest smart speakers, including the increasingly common ads that show up in Alexa's responses. But it feels like Apple is still two years or more behind Amazon and Google when it comes to smart speakers. And compared to the equally priced Echo and Nest Audio, the HomePod Mini struggles to keep up in both sound quality and features, end quote. Hey, we're going to test out a new kind of bonus episode next week. I'm going to call these new types of episodes Office Hours episodes. The idea is we'll sit down with somebody in tech, not to talk to them about the latest news or whatever, but to talk to them about them how they work, how they live, what tools they find most useful to do what they do, what philosophies of work and life and whatever else they live by to find success. The idea is to be less formal and more free-flowing to try to see what makes these people tick and also to maybe learn some lessons that will help all of us. So we could ask anything from, you know, what's the latest book they read to what apps are on their home screen, on their phones. Think of Office Hours as a way to get to know the people behind the headlines, but also to get a little inspiration and aspirational information from them. And as a part of that, we'll also allow any of you to join in on the Zoom call recording of the conversation. I'll probably end up asking most of the questions, unlike the listener call-in episodes. I'll probably limit the questions to three or four so I can make sure we hit the areas of learning that we're looking to get into and keep the conversation on track. But hey, that's why we're calling it Office Hours. If you ever wanted to sit down with an important person in tech and pick their brain, this is your chance. This is very much a nascent idea, so this first recording will very much be a test. And so, because it is, I thought we'd start with someone easy who knows the show. So we're going to record the first Office Hours episode with inventor of the hashtag himself and your podcast ombudsman, Chris Messina. So, Wednesday, November 18th at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific, 2 a.m., I guess, GMT, we'll record an episode with Chris. I'll post the Zoom link at some point next week. But yeah, if you'd like to ask Chris Messina anything about product design, about product hunting, about how he works and what he's passionate about, about how he does what he does, join us next Wednesday. Talk to you tomorrow.